Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I speak with photographer Eric Kunzman. Eric Kunzman is a photographer, photographic educator, and founder of Booksmart Studio, a fine art digital printing studio specializing in services for photographers and book artists. Eric has been exhibited in over 35 solo exhibitions at venues such as the Los Angeles Center for Digital Art, the Hoyt Institute of Fine Art, as well as group shows at the Philadelphia Photo Arts Center and the Colorado Photographic Arts Center, to name a few. I first met Eric Kunzman while attending the Rochester Institute of Technology, and I've had much respect for Eric's passion for photography, as well as his high level of craftsmanship for printing and bookmaking. So I was really excited to get Eric on the show and kind of talk to him about all the different things he's working on. So I hope you enjoy it, and thanks so much for listening. Recording. Let me start over. <laughs> no problem. All right. Perfect. Got it. All right. Eric Kunzman, welcome to the podcast, man. Uh, thanks for taking the time to do this. Really excited to talk to you. Um, I guess to start off, I was just kind of curious, like, the last four months been crazy, everything going on in the world. Um, like, how, how's life been for you? Like, this creative-wise, have you still been shooting, or what's kind of been the last four months been for you? The last four months were, at first, it was just trying to get home. Um, I was out in San Francisco for a solo show. Okay. My father-in-law was very nervous about that. We got home, and then I had to go to Houston for, for PhotoFest and SPE, which is Society for Photographic Education. Yep. And that's right when RIT decided we're closing. Uh, we're going to go to online only. Yep. And so I was teaching color management of all things. I'm like, how am I going to teach color management with no printers, no you know, spectrophotometers, none of the gear yeah. for the, the students. So it really became about just getting through, as we all called it, the Zoom master. Um, once that finished in May, it's just been a struggle. I mean, like I think everybody else, there's days where you want to get up and go out and photograph and do the work. I'm lucky enough to have my own studio where I'm able to get out the house bring the kids down here sometimes get them out of our house and away yep. from people but then still trying to get out and photograph as much as possible but the motivation i think a lot of people right now are struggling you know there's good days bad days yeah i mean not just that but everything going on with black lives matter also it's there's yeah. so many things going on yeah it's so. definitely yeah it's definitely a lot going on and it's like even i haven't really shot much the last four months some little things here and there but yeah it's just kind of yeah, weird times. I know some people have been diving into creative projects, which is great. And other people has kind of been taking time just to, I guess, like, I don't know, think, I guess. But uh, I guess with the, with the online learning, I was curious to talk to you about that because I know you teach at RIT, you've taught at other schools. Um, how was that? Because like, that's what I was thinking. I was, I was like, because some stuff you just can't learn online, like, especially when you're trying to learn like equipment. Like I was mm -hmm. trying to think back when I was at RIT, if I'm trying to learn how to like use a lighting kit or like something, if you don't have it, like, how do you like even teach that? Well, that's, I guess certain things like lighting and, you know, where it's not just gear, like I'm supposed to teach fine print workflow in the fall. How do you teach that if a kid doesn't have a printer? Yeah. Um, but things like Clay McBride, Clay Patrick McBride teaching lighting. Yeah. I saw and other people teaching, you know, basic photo. The kids were doing some really creative stuff because they were no longer enamored by the world. They were confined to this space and they really had to start looking a yeah. lot closer and yeah. even playing with lighting. What do you have in your room, you know, that you're trying to light with? You don't have strobe. You have, you know, continuous light. 
and what are you using for diffusers? You know, you have to be more creative, I think. And that was a little bit more interesting that I've seen. The kids actually have to learn how to problem solve. Yeah. Which yeah. is when you and I were in photography school back in the day. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit before you, I think a decade or so. Yep. But all photography, as you know, is all we do all day long is problem solve. Yeah. Yeah. It's been kind of interesting because like a lot of magazine, like big magazines have been even doing like the, I've seen a couple the Hollywood reporter has had a few covers where it's just, uh, they did the portrait photographers just use like zoom or FaceTime cause they, they couldn't go in person. So, and the photos were still amazing. Like Frank Ockenfels had a cover where it was all through zoom. And I was just like, wow, man, it kind of like in these weird times, it really had to like make you get creative and figure shit out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a student from Drexel university who had the cover of the New York times or whatever it was. And she did everything by directing other students through zoom they'd send her files then she'd go back to them what to correct wow. so she was more of like a photography director through zoom which again just the creativity that people have to go through i think it's bringing in a whole different level which i hope it'll help the future generation for sure and with rit like are you guys going back to in-person learning in the fall or what's the where's where are things at right now we are RIT has made a policy that only 20% is allowed to be online. And then we can either be in person or blended where it could be online and in person. Yeah. I'm planning on going back because of teaching the printing classes um, and portfolio. It's one of those things that how can you really do that without the portfolio? We can do critiques online, which is fine, but fine print workflow need to be able to look at those prints and controlled lighting and just give the students access to printer. Yeah. Uh, that's, I want to go back. Honestly, I personally did not like the, the entire zoom. Yeah. I like it for what we're doing with photo now, like you and I meeting on zoom, you know, it's uh, voice, but so many other opportunities with museums and galleries have opened up where we can attend openings or I've had openings with the Atlanta photography group. She said, normally they get what 35, 40 people max in the gallery. I think there was 150 people at the opening on zoom. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I actually did a photo show a couple months ago and it was online. It was, people could actually like talk and like comment on it. It was really like, it was kind of bizarre. <laughs> it was cool though. Uh, yeah. But There's more, like, you know, it's helping the community more, I think in some ways. What, what's like the overall consensus with, I guess like your coworkers and everyone else, like in terms of like going back or like people nervous or like, or is it kind of this uh, confusing times in terms of like how they're going to approach teaching or is it everyone that's kind of on the same page pretty much you think? I think people are planning for the worst right now, which is the fact that we might have to close again and do online only. Yeah. And I will say this, anybody that teaches online and does it successfully, you're a rock star because honestly it takes so much more time and to get people involved and invested in the class is that much harder. Yep. Um, so that's where they're really preparing for that. And then if need be, if we're in the classroom, you can use that as blended of, Oh, do this at home, come back to the classroom. And now we can do even more. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but a tough. lot of people oops, yeah sorry. yeah it's tough because like so much as you know like the college experience for sure like in class is important but I feel like I don't know if you'd agree I learned so much just being around like my fellow students like Dan Hughes because he was like so much better at like technical stuff than me and just being able to like run into him in the hallway and like stop and talk for a while and it's like when you're online you don't really get that I'm sure yeah you can do like online messaging but I don't feel like it's the same so that's kind of the difficulty part of it no, and that's one of the best parts is, you know, about being at RIT, you have so many other photo geeks, everybody has their own little niche. Yeah. So you just bounce ideas. I mean, that's the best part about being at RIT, let alone the facilities yeah. is your community, the people that you have to work with. And that same thing goes with faculty. Yeah. You know, if have a lighting issue, you can throw it by clay. 
if yeah. he has a printing thing, he can throw it by me. I mean, that's it's same for students and faculty, and we just don't have that right now. Yeah, it's interesting. Hopefully, we'll get it back. For sure, man, in time. Um, but I guess to go back, like, I was kind of curious, like, where do you grow up and, like, how do you kind of initially get into photography? So I grew up in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, and I grew up a roofer's son. So from fourth grade through college, I was stuck roofing every summer. Oh, damn. And I quickly realized what I did not want to do, even though it was a family business. I'm like, my brother could have the business. I'm out of here. i had always been interested in fine art. And then just like a lot of people in high school, I was introduced to photography. Um, but where I would grow up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it, it was right when the Bethlehem steel was dying. So all these photojournalists are descending on Bethlehem, cutting holes in fences to get the best shot. And then my high school photo teacher showed me one of Walker Evans images from the cemetery. And I had a love for history and fine art. And I was like, man, photo really can help capture that and, you know, preserve the idea of what's going on within a community. And that was kind of my hook. But at that time, I was a horrible student. I think my high school GPA was like 2.3, something like that, because all I did was wrestle. Damn. Um, so I turned down a scholarship to wrestle because like, for the second year in a row, I was like, I'm done. I went to a four-year school in Northern Jersey. I won't mention the name because I knew if I stayed there, I would never amount to anything in my life. Okay. Got out and went to Mercer County Community College, which was the best thing I ever did. I went there for one year. I studied under Lou Draper. He was part of Kamonji, which is a group for African-Americans to help push and really give them access and push their work further. He found it when Roy de, Car sorry, Roy de Carava and others were part of this group. So it was a huge group through you know the 60s. And it's still going today. Obviously different group. But I studied under Lou, who's also one of W. Gene Smith's print assistants and students. And so that's where he really learned a lot in the dark room. And I really truly believe who I am as a human being, photographer and educator really came from that one year being with Lou. And he's the one who actually told me about RIT. Okay, wow. So. Yeah, because I saw even on your website, after he passed away, you published a book of like some of his photos and everything, which that seemed like a pretty powerful thing, uh, like having to like edit someone's work after they passed away and being that he was so close to you like what what do you think you kind of learned most from him and like how is that kind of process of like putting that book together after the fact of when he passed away that was a really strange time because um what happened was i just gone on the southwest photo workshop a year or two before with uh, willie osman through rit it was a, a trip where we traveled for three weeks i went back and showed him the work i did out of it and he goes you know what? i want you to have an exhibition here he got the gallery director to agree after because they wanted him to have a solo show. And I wound up having that exhibition in November. Lou passed away in February. Um, and everybody's, so then I got a call, I think it was about March. I was about to take a job at Hallmark Institute of Photography that day. And the dean called and said, hey, look, you need to apply for this position. Um, we're not running the search, different colleges because it's so political. But can you, will you apply? I'm like, I was just about to take a job. Mm -hmm. Let's just put on hold for a little bit, just in case. We're going to go through this faster. And it wound up being myself and Joe Zakowski, who was another RIT adjunct professor at the time. The two of us were the finalists. Wow. We drove down together and freaked them out because they're like, you two drove together? Um, it was, they didn't know what to do with us. <laughs> and I wound up getting the job. But the reason why I bring this up is the community college then wound up raising $35,000 to publish that book. Okay. Um, we started doing it. 
And what I learned, the best part was, it wasn't just myself that edited it by any means. I got to go into New York City and meet with his fellow Kimonji members who knew him better than any of us did. Damn. Um, some of the other adjuncts that worked at Mercer County Community College also were there. Uh, John Sinkiskis, Gary Zaretsky, who did a lot of the archiving. He's the one who basically got it to go down to, um, I believe it's at Virginia Commonwealth University, VCU, at this point, somewhere down in Virginia, among college's entire archive. Yeah. Um, but what we did was basically put photocopies up. And before we did anything, we all walked around with push pins and we tacked up to the ones that we all liked the most. Mm. And then the Kamonji members went around and talked about what they re remember Lou talking about. So I got to learn so much more about Lou than what I had already known. Um, so that was really a good part to it. It took a long time, unfortunately, for me to finish the book yep. uh, because it was right in the midst of 2008 and everything collapsing for the studio. Mm -hmm. So that unfortunately took a little bit longer than it should have on my part. Yeah. Yeah. It took a lot of pressure, like going through someone else's work. Like anytime, like you ever see like a musician will come out with like a record, they'll, they'll, they'll publish a record after they pass away. And it's like, it's gotta be a lot of pressure. It's like, Hey, does, would he like this? Like trying to convey someone else's message. It's, it's, it's a lot of pressure putting that all together. I bet. Oh, I heard his voice many times in my head. Yeah. What do you feel like being like on your website, you said he was kind of your mentor. Like, what do you feel like you kind of learned most from him? I, and that's where I kind of mentioned it a little bit, but really, you know, he was one of those professors that when we had opened darkroom time, he'd be in there with us printing. Mm -hmm. So just watching his process for printing was really one of the biggest things, but even how I approached teaching my critiques are based off of how Lou did it yeah. um we're really about you know just as much about the print as it was why you took the photograph and then everything needs to be in that frame for a reason he beat us up on that left and right and i mean just those pieces and also just how he went about his life i mean he was just that complete kind of package i really would say i only had two other mentors that i had from rit but the fact that i went to rit and here I learned more from a gentleman in one year at a community college. Everybody, you know, shuns community colleges at times. But I had Willie Osterman at RIT and Owen Butler were probably my two other biggest mentors. Wow. Um, Owen got me into the book. And then Willie with his technical, with his zone system and all those pieces really helped push. But um, overall, that's, like I said, Lou really shaped me as a person, I would believe. No, that's awesome. And when you kind of went to RIT, like, uh, do you kind of have a goal in mind for the type of photography work you thought you wanted to do or what were you, cause I know RIT is kind of, they have like fine art, photojournalism, they have the ad program and then they have the biomedical program. Uh, I don't know if it was like that when you were there, but like when you got there, what do you think you wanted to do? <laughs> so I went into fine art photography initially. And when I got there, I was literally the only person in my class taking photographs. I'm like, what are we doing? We're at the, we're in school for fine art photography, not fine art. Oh, oh people um, are like it's painting and doing other like abstract stuff. People were putting on performances. One of my buddies I still talk to, his quarter long project was collecting beer caps. Um, and I'm not making this up. So I was just sitting there going, what am I doing? So I decided to double major. I was one of the first people, I guess, to double major. I was told I couldn't do it. Found finally somebody that said, you know what? Just come to me every quarter. I'll sign off on your paperwork. So I took biomed photo classes. I wound up with BS in biomed photo, BFA in fine art photo. 
And I took PJ and ad. I just tried taking as many classes as I could. I figured I was paying so much money there. I wanted to learn as much as possible. Yeah. And so I was taking about between 21 to 25 credits a quarter at the time. And then I wound up also wrestling at RIT. And then I worked the cage. As you know, you learn just as much working at the cage or the printing lab at RIT or repair with Mr. Bill. That's where the real education also comes in. Um, and that's where I, you've always been, you always been juggling stuff. That's, that's why I was interested to talk to you because you got your hands in like so many different baskets and it's just like, you, 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 you never can have enough on your plate. It seems like, but that's where I really learned it because when I was in the fine art photo and I was just cruising along as a normal student, I was doing nothing that I liked. And when I started taking all those extra classes, that's when I realized that, you know what, this is how I like to work. Mm. And that's one thing I really did learn. And people, you know, always ask because I do like having many things going on at one time. I think it prevents me from being bored. I don't know yep. what it is. Yep. And it's probably the Dr. Pepper also, since everybody <laughs> jokes around, I drink so much of it. Um, but yeah, no, I love overdoing it. I guess you could say. And, and with biomedical, maybe for people listening that haven't heard what that is before, like what is biomedical photography and what made you kind of want to study that? Cause it's like its own real niche pretty much. The reason why I went to biomedical was I figured, okay, I came to RIT for the technical part. I wasn't getting any of the technical. Uh, so that's why I took the most technical thing there was. Well, one of the most technical things at the time, which was photomicroscopy, which is photographs through the microscope, um, all different types, you know, learning about different wavelengths and different types of film. Back in the day, we had, you know, orthochromatic film, you know, infrared film. And that's where I really learned along with Willie Osterman's zone system class, how to control the technical. Cause I'm one of those people that if I have an idea in mind, I just want to be able to capture it. I don't have to think about the technical that should come as second nature. Yeah. And that's kind of what I showed up RIT really wanting. And that's why I also took, you know, lighting. Photography. Why did I take photojournalism with Owen Butler? I figured, you know, I need the best rounded education I could. And ironically, I looked at RIT as more of an exercise the only work I ever show from RIT is the work I did after I graduated, which was part of the Southwest photo workshop. Oh yeah. Everything else was kind of an exercise. I don't show that work at all. Um, Other than maybe my internship, which was at McGuire air force base for biomed photo. I got to, you know, photograph the blue angels in midair refueling um, the golden Knights jumping out of the plane, autopsies, you name it. Um, It was best 10 weeks of a kid's life you could ever imagine, I guess. Yeah, I don't think most people look back at their college work and like show it pretty much because it's like, I don't know about you, but like I'm like 12 years out of RIT now and I still feel like I'm still trying to figure out like what the fuck I'm doing and like what I'm trying to shoot. Like that's one thing I'm always curious, like did it take you kind of a while to figure out like who you are as a photographer, your approach, like what you're trying to document or is it just something that's kind of continually evolving for you, you think? Continually evolving. I'm always trying to figure out and life experience really dictates each of my bodies of work. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was down in, um, at Mercer, I wound up taking that job at Mercer County Community College, running that photo program for three years and working on my MFA at University Arts in book arts and printmaking. But while I did that, I was taking students to Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. And it was just another penitentiary, peeling, basically ruined porn. I had no interest in photographing it until I came across the warden's log books because of my photography, my bookbinding professor at university arts. 
the logs were from 1820s to 1840s. If I didn't come across those, I would have never done that body of work. Yeah. And I was able to photograph every page. So my life influences, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm doing. And I joke around. I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> That's smart, man. Uh, yeah, because I noticed one series on your Instagram I thought was cool. It was, uh, I believe you like went back to your hometown and photographed like it was 250 East Broad Street, which I think was like your family's roofing business. And it was like, I think you posted like 28 or 30 pictures. And you said you just made them all within like five hours. Uh, like, what was that all about? So Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, um, when I grew up there, it was a completely different town. It was blue collar. Um, and I joke with people all the time that New Jersey's invaded my hometown. Yeah. Uh, and what happened was there's a casino in Bethlehem now. And what was sad is I actually made the entryway mural there, which is printed on our old metal that we used to distribute and print on. And so I thought, okay, this will be Friends can at least explain to their friends what they do or what I do, I should say. Yeah. And what happened was my friends got hooked at the casino time. Yeah. Uh, they lost a lot of money there. Damn. I don't know if they're still doing it or not. We don't even talk about it. Yeah. But that warehouse is the warehouse before I grew up fourth grade through college working there. My grandfather started the business and I was home for Thanksgiving and the warehouse was about to go away um, very quickly because of issues with debt. Yep. So I had my camera with me. I didn't plan on doing that shoot. I didn't even have a tripod. I went around. I just, that's where it's called um, memory warehouse. I don't have any art statement up there. It's just there more for me more than anything else. I was literally going around with a trash can as my tripod in the Hasselblad yeah. and everybody else is just trying to empty stuff out. And I'm just sitting there just doing that. And I've never taken a picture of my formal portrait of my father or my mother. Yeah. But my father was just so emotional there as this was going on that I had to have him just sit down my son was with me and he's like, Pappy, get over here and sit down. He wants to take your picture because he refused to at first. My yeah, son's like, get over here. He's what, six he's, at the time, I think. He's art directing. <laughs> oh, he, he just said, you need to come sit so my dad can take a picture of you. Yeah. And so that's where that came from. Yeah, that's always like, I've always been amazed by, I know a lot of people like photograph their family like very intimately. It's something I've never done myself really. It's like, a, I, I don't know. I have a hard time doing it. Cause like when I look at someone, I don't know, I'm trying to think of who does it. Like Larry Tao, like he, he made a whole book photographing his family. Like, is that something for you? Like, is it difficult to photograph your family or it's just not something you're so much interested in like making a body of work out of? Cause I know a lot of people do it. Um, I think one thing that helps me with that is my wife has a policy that my kids are not on social media. Yep. They are not on my, I was allowed to do the one time lapse I have on Instagram of my daughter helping me at the studio. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I think it helps also that my wife kind of wants our kids to have a private life because so much is on social media now. Smart. Um, but even personally, I'll take, you know, it, during COVID, I've taken more family to record time. But other than that, I'm not a portrait person. I'm really not. Yeah. I kind of get that awkward, you know, trying to ask somebody like people and other people are such smooth talkers. They can walk up and be like, I want to take your picture. Just stand there. did it. I'm not that person either. <laughs> You're the one who does that all the time with your baseball and everything else. Yeah. You're always doing. I am. I'm still nervous sometimes. For me, it's like the reason I do it, it's like uh, I, I view like anytime I photograph someone I don't know as like a challenge because I'm, I'm nervous. I'm like, fuck that. I'm going to get through this challenge. So it's like it's like this internal dialogue. It's like, do it. Do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, Sometimes I'm defeated and sometimes I'm not. But that's how I view it. Maybe that's weird. <laughs> Yeah, it's that whole thing. It's like the worst thing that they can say is no, but it's just like, man, yep. 
I, I hear no enough from galleries and museums. You think I would be okay with all this rejection of being able to go take portraits of people, but still yeah. can't do it. Yeah, that was one thing I was yeah. going to ask you about, like, because you you exhibited your work at a lot of different galleries. You're represented, I think, now by the Hope Gallery, and then I believe another gallery in Europe. Uh, was that like always kind of your goal to kind of exhibit your work at galleries and kind of publish books? And like like you're saying, like how do you kind of deal with that like rejection? Because that's a big part of it, I would imagine. Um, and that's one of the biggest things I think when I actually went back. So. I started the studio when I moved back to Rochester in 2005 yep. and I knew I didn't want to teach full time. And we had the galleries, we had, you know, supply sales, a whole different, we went down the wrong fork for a little while with Booksmart studio. And then in 2012, I decided to go back and teach full time. And that's where teaching at RIT, that's allowed me now to start doing my photography again. Cause from 2005 to 2012, I did no photography. Cause you were this managing uh, your, your uh, printing studio book smart, which that the one you used to have, I remember being in college and you had that huge gallery space, huge, yep. like uh, retail space, the printing And it. Even I remember going into that place. I was like, man, this is a lot to handle. <laughs> like it's a lot of pressure having that much like overhead and everything, man. Yeah. We had eight employees and like I said, we were selling the supplies. And I think it was about 2010 where I started to find myself and my employees too. We would walk around saying, you know, I hate people, all people, I don't discriminate because yeah, yeah. people were just with retail and photographers and artists always won that handout. Yeah. And I was like, you know, what? I'm done with this. So we actually got rid of that part and sold it off to shades of paper in New Jersey. Yeah. And like just here, just take it, take the website for fineartinkjetpaper.com. And because I was like, why did I go to school, photo school? Why did I get my MFA? I'm not doing any photography. Yeah, I'm doing the printing part, which I love doing, but that's not all I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'd say about 2016, I started building up other bodies of work, 2012, 2016. I finished the Eastern State Penitentiary work and I started exhibiting that. That was 2014. Mm -hmm. And people are always like, man, you're pushing so hard. I'm like, I'm kind of making up for a gap of 2005 to 2010, 2012 seven years that I didn't do anything. Yeah. So, and that's where the rejection, um, it does suck. It still hurts no matter what, when you get the rejection, no matter where it's from. Yeah. Um, but the way I try to COVID hasn't really helped us as much, but I always take the stance that when I get rejected from one, I'll, I apply to two. Okay. And I've kind of every night before I go to sleep, obviously I have issues falling asleep. That's why I do all this work. Um, I would always sit there and try to apply to two or three different things each night. The free ones, not always the ones that you have to pay to play. Oh, so when you say like applying, that's like photo, like, like contests or what does it mean? You're applying, you're applying like. Um, a lot of the museums, especially the university galleries and even like the Griffin museum in Boston. Yep. I'm a member there, but they have where it will be juried there. Those are juried by, you know, somebody highly regarded. So those are the ones where kind of competition, but you can actually be juried into that exhibition, which is more the group shows, yeah. but the solo exhibition and what they want is basically a full packet. They want, you know, your artist statement, you know, 20 images. Some of them want, you know, what kind of things can you teach while you're here? Um, so those are the ones where you don't have to apply to, but you better have a full body of work that can relate to the people on that college campus yeah. or university. So that's where a lot of the solo shows I have are at a lot of universities. And it's just, like you said, just pushing through um, 
even things like the Association of Photography over in the UK. I applied for their contest and happened to win that last year. Um, and it was funny because they're like, yeah, Lumix was there to give you your camera and they did not expect an American to win. So we don't know how to get it to you. <laughs> so it took like two months between the European Lumix division and the American Lumix division to get the camera. So it was just kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's interesting because that's like a world I've I literally know nothing about, like the fine art gallery world. I've never even attempted to like show my work. I'm just kind of stuck in my like editorial and do my own personal project. So I was interested in talking to you about it, because like, what is it you're looking for? Because I know like when you're represented by Hope Gallery, like what does that like partnership entail? Like why did you partner with them, and like what do they kind of bring to the table for you? I guess. So really, um, having her represent. Uh, Bay Lamar is the gallery owner and HOTE actually stands for humans of the earth. So there's a lot higher end, you know, photography galleries, people say, Oh, well, I want to be part of this X, Y, and Z gallery. But for me, for the first person representing me, I felt it was perfect because kind of similar ideas. A lot of my work is about, you know, socioeconomic type of ideas, trying to really make people aware of things that I'm observing And that's what pulled her into wanting to represent my work. So we had that connection. So now, you know, she should, the, uh, excuse me, we should have a solo exhibition because I just started working with her uh, about seven months before COVID. Mm -hmm. And there was going to be a solo show out at her gallery, which now obviously nothing's happening with that out in LA. But there's that 60-40 split. But she's also looking for other opportunities for me with other galleries out in LA which really helps. But a lot of it is me trying to push my stuff out there. And then it's nice to have somebody else also trying to push it. The um, Malamigi lab out in Italy, they're basically, their whole push for trying to sell the work is working with interior designers throughout Europe. So they have a different type of niche where Hote Gallery is trying to get it out to her collectors as well as partnering with other galleries that represent just photographers in LA to also work with them and get it out to their collectors. And the goal of that is to try to sell the work. Yeah. Cause I'm trying tired of going into debt for all these exhibitions all the time. I know, man, I thought it's crazy. People don't realize like, uh, cause I have some friends who are kind of in this world and like even people that like print books, like, I think people don't realize like even some of these big photographers, you think they're publishing a book, like they're making a lot of money nine out of 10 times if they break even that's a fucking win like no one makes money on this shit (laughs) it's crazy you know that and that's the thing you're just trying to break even so you get to the next thing and you know keep going um that's the big thing yeah nobody realizes i won't even tell you how much money i spent last year on my shows i had uh it was a good year 2019 i think i had over 60 exhibitions between 60 60 Jesus between Christ. juried and solo shows in 2020, I was supposed to have seven solo shows. So I've been, but again, people don't realize when you see all those, had those seven, I probably had 80 rejections. Oh yeah. Um, but just keep on the door trying to, you know, make those connections with people, especially I go to a lot of the portfolio reviews. I made the mistake the first time when my Eastern State Penitentiary body work, which titled Thou Art Will Give, was done. And I went to Santa Fe Reviews and it was, I felt like all I was trying to do was push it on people. Okay. And how do you build a relationship when all you're trying to do is that? So my latest work is only halfway done. So I was like, all right, let's go this time, 50% done and get feedback. And people were so much more receptive. I made so many, you know, I've 
even other participants that are there. So many more connections and really growing that community a lot more. Yeah, you got to have like a lot of patience because like when you say you're like pushing on people, because I think uh, I had this like when I first got out of school and I was just trying to find my first editorial clients. It was like, yeah, you go in because you're like so hungry. You want to work with these people. So it's and it's almost like we're not selling insurance here, guys. It's like you got you you feel like you kind of have to have that patience and like put yourself in the other person's shoes kind of like a little bit. Yeah. And I tell this to my students all the time. When I first started applying back in 2005, when I was at Mercer, yep. because I was tenure track at the time, um, I'd apply, I'd get rejected. So finally, after like five times of getting all my images rejected, I asked my wife, pick one out. Hers gets in. I'm like, all right, this isn't cool. So I had to pick another one the next time. That one gets in. <laughs> so the next few shows, I'm like, all right, you pick two. Those two would get in. I'm like, you know what? Forget it. Fuck it. You pick which ones I should be entering. Because we are so connected sometimes with our work too. Oh, 100%. Having that person that, you know, just completely fresh eye. My biggest critic right now, and I'm not joking, when I apply to exhibitions, my five-year-old daughter is the one picking what images I'm applying with. Interesting. She's my best critic at this point. And she could give me honest feedback that nobody else can. Yeah. And And man, she's tough. (laughs) That's amazing. And do you feel like... Like when you're trying to get into these galleries and shows, do you feel like uh, you need to like make work that will like fit these like different galleries or you don't even like worry about that? You just kind of make the work you you are inspired by or how do you approach that? Because are there like, do you see like trends in terms of like the type of photography that's being shown in galleries? Is there kind of like that aspect of it at all? There's definitely trends and I'll be completely honest. I've never thought about a gallery when I'm making my work. My work is about, like I said, a reflection of what's going on in my life and whatever's inspiring me at the time. Yeah. Um, the galleries, and that's the thing is everybody's, there's ebb and flow. Like right now, what's important, you know, I've been rejected by things, some grants saying, oh, we're going to focus on COVID-based work. Yep. Now, um, Black Lives Matter, which is important to be showing right now to help that movement. 100%. And and just understanding that, that you know, everything's going to come back around. And even my the work I am doing with the payphones, it was never intended to talk about, you know, black lives matter and everything else. But the idea of it being about race, class and economics and Rochester, people like that has a fit right now. I'm like, well, that's not, it does, but it doesn't. Yeah. Um, And really, like I said, my work, I have never, and I never will. If I do ever think and worry about what's going on in the galleries, that's when I know I should just hang it up. Exactly. Cause all I'm worried about is that that's not what inspires me at all. Yeah, 100%. And the, and the payphone thing you were mentioning, your project, I believe it's pronounced Philosophic uh, Calculus. Uh, first off, oh, what's the title all about? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that project because anybody, you can go on your Instagram, your website, there's some really cool photos of this kind of payphones you've been photographing. Yeah, and that's where, because everybody's like, what is Philosophic Calculus? That's why the subtitle is also Technology as a Social Marker of Race, Class, and Economics in Rochester, New York. Got it. Because people are like, what is Philosophic Calculus? I'm like, go Google it. Um, And really what it is, I'll tell that part of it first, is Frontier Communications in Rochester has been in financial trouble for years. They just claimed bankruptcy during COVID, actually. Mm. And as I started this project, I started to see you know, the payphones, how many of them were still up and that they were still working and knowing they're not making money off those. For once, a corporation chose something for the better of community rather than just corporate greed. Yeah. And philosophic calculus is an algorithm which is used for the betterment of a community. 
And when I was trying to think of a title, because at first, um, I'll go back to why I started the project, which is, as you mentioned, my old studio for 10 years was by the Eastman Museum and the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester. It was about 13,000 square feet. Yeah, nice. We wound up leaving that after a few years, well, 10 years. And I found a space that I actually bought in up near the soccer stadium and the baseball stadium, which everybody labels as the scary part of Rochester. Um, but when I came to the studio, it's been a photo studio since 1960s. I'm the third owner that has it as something related to photo. So I didn't have to worry about it for zoning. It was actually one of my old clients. It was the last part of her divorce creed. So she was trying to get rid of it. And when I came to look at it, I went to the corner, you know, very, very quiet area. I looked up at the roofs and everything, you know, the homes are well maintained. I backed up the first moving truck after we bought it and three kids came over. They were nine years old. It was Harry, Elijah and Grumpy. I said, Grumpy, where did you get your name? He goes, when I was one or two, somebody took a lollipop from me and I made a grumpy face and it just stuck. I'm grumpy. <laughs> and so these kids, you know, all different cultures come over and like, can we help you? I'm like, yeah, sure. So they're carrying, like, take all these rolls of paper to the far back area. And they're, they're carrying the paper for about 10, 15 minutes. I'm like, man, this is cool. Then like, we can get paid. I'm like, I don't have any cash. I'm, you know, I'm literally moving. Yeah. Like, well, what do you have? And the previous owner had left coffee mugs okay. up in the kitchen area. But I'm like, I got coffee mugs. Like, sweet. So I'm like, all right, we'll finish carrying all those rolls to the back and you can, you know, pick what mug you want. These kids walked away like you thought I paid them each 50 to $100 Damn. holding this mug. Look what we got. Look what we earned. Yeah. And they, they come over. They play with my son now. Only Harry is around. Elijah and Grumpy have moved out of the area. Um, but, you know, my son plays with these kids. And so my colleagues at RIT and my friends out in the suburbs all started labeling this area as a war zone. You know, how could you have that area? You know, we can't show in your galleries anymore. I'm like, I got rid of the galleries anyway. So I started trying to figure out why. And I noticed three things, the neighborhood bars, corner stores, and payphones. There was like 40 payphones within four square blocks, even on the corners of the neighborhood. And I was like, what's going on here? And that's where I started to try to examine that. At first, Hughes would go with me. We were just payphone hunting, um, driving around, looking for them. My, three -year, my daughter was three at the time. She could spot them before we could. She was called Eagle Eyes Gunsman for the payphones. And so... And then it developed into Frontier, decided to sponsor the work. They gave me the list. And at that time, it was 2017. I had a relationship with the people that were working um, within that department. And they knew why the payphones were still there. And they said, yeah, they're there, you know, because we're trying to support that community that so many people were left behind. And when I reached back out to them in 2019, because the local paper did an article on it, they're like, all those people had left. And now their whole attitude was they are what they are. As soon as they're no longer, you know, feasible, they're, they're done. Yeah. So their whole attitude changed. So then I was like, do I change the title of my project or not? I'm like, no, because that's what they did. And that's why we still have 1,455 payphones in Rochester. Wow. 1,000. 1,455. And when you were, when you were out there photographing, how often would you run into someone that would actually stop and like use them? Was it very often or not much or. Well, that's where. Um, Frontier doesn't even, didn't even know which ones worked and which ones don't. Um, so I'm also mapping that as okay. I'm doing it. Uh, I can tell you which locations I know people are constantly using. Um, but on Main Street near what's called the Busy Bee Restaurant, where you can get a good meal for eight nine dollars. 
-hmm. It's about three blocks from our homeless encampment. Those pay phones are constantly used uh, for obvious reasons. But there's other certain ones, even in the suburbs, where I get texts from people now, uh, people on the pay phones being like, somebody's using this one. (laughs) And so I get a quick photo of it. Uh, And the reason is I kind of, I guess I have spotters out there now for me (laughs) is what's going on. But part of the project, um, I was supposed to show my work at SEPA Gallery, which is in Buffalo. And when they came for a studio, he came in and I just started this project. And he goes, we don't want to show the penitentiary work. I'm like, then why did you drive all the way out here? He's like, we want to show this payphone work. I'm like, I don't know where this is going. It's brand new. And so it's going to be shown 2021, April through July. I was lucky enough to get a Warhol Foundation's grant to help subsidize part of it. Um, But as you talked about, how many people are using those phones? I'm actually buying pay phones. My wife says they need to stay here at the studio. They're not allowed at home because I wanted it through Google Voice. Originally, I planned on seeing the people face-to-face and recording their stories as to why they're still using the phone, what they use it for. Um, When I've talked to the people that I have seen using it, one of the number one things they say, you know, I'm tired of being labeled or stared at when I'm using the phone. Yep, like they yep. think I'm calling my drug dealer or something else. And the one guy's like, you know, or maybe it's cause I don't have any teeth. Yep. Um, so, so I want to tell their story by picking up the phone in the gallery. You hear them talking about it rather than me. And then also showing maps with census information and the locations of the pay phones to show it's not about crime. It is really race and economics when Definitely. it comes down to it. And when you say you're buying pay phones, what do you, what do you mean by that? Like you're, I'm kind of confused. Like, like the payphone you would have on the wall, the full-fledged payphone on eBay, you can buy them. Yep. But I'm specifically buying frontier communication ones um, because what at RIT now, where there was the payphone by the third floor cage many, many moons ago, yep. that is now a video sh- showcase. And if you want the audio, they sell the payphone there. You pick it up and you get the audio for the videos. Okay. So you can actually hack the payphones so we can actually put audio recordings in there that will be triggered as you pick it up um, and that's why i'm buying the full-fledged all right so the audio recordings are like interviews you're doing yes okay so got it. what i'm gonna do is now because of covid realizing that this isn't going away anytime soon i'm gonna put a placard up at the payphones asking people to call me for 50 cents oh and got we'll it. do a phone interview that way and i'm only gonna have their audio not mine as to, you know, a series of questions. And then in return, I want to meet with them and give them a $10, you know, prepaid calling card. Damn. So that way I'm not just paying somebody cash and they're making up stories, but instead, if they're legitimately using the pay phones, then that $10 calling card actually has some value to them. That's fucking cool, man. Like, have you, have you got any calls yet? Or is this something you're still working on setting up? No, that's where, like I said, I was just about to start putting the placards up right when COVID was hitting because I want to do it in the warmer months. As you know, in Rochester, that's June through August. Yeah. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Um, and then COVID hit. So now it's like, you know, I was brainstorming with a few people the other day. It's like all through Google. Let's yep. do it through Google Audio and have them call in and or Google Voice and record them that way. And then also the audio is coming through a payphone, so it'll sound like crap. Then when they play it back, it'll sound like crap. It'll hide kind of some of the race and class of individuals. 
Wow. That's going to be amazing, man. You're going to get so many amazing stories as people in the community. Like I just started doing this a couple months ago. I've just been doing these like live shows where I just put a link to zoom and people call in. Let's get random people like this call in. So it's been fun. Uh, but with that, I, I'm excited to see what you get from that. Cause you, I think de definitely you're going to get a bunch of people calling you, you, you. Who knows what you're going to hear, you know? Yeah. And that's where, and really the big thing for that too, is then to take that to city hall and let them know, hey, somebody, Frontier's about to die. Yep. Even though they still have the name and rights to the minor league ballpark here in Rochester. Yeah. Who's going to subsidize this technology for these individuals? Everybody says, oh, as everybody nicknamed them, the Obama phones. They don't always work. Mm -hmm. They don't always have electric to charge them. So pay phones are still being used. And Rochester's not the only city. When I travel, Portland, Oregon, Tucson, Arizona, um, when I was down at Mary Virginia Swanson's masterclass, um, I went there a few days, a day or so early, just to get used to the elevation. And I was driving around looking for payphones. I came across a homeless encampment and there was three guys standing next to two payphones. I'm like, oh my God. And I don't photograph people in the scene normally because I want them to be environmental portraits of who might be using the phone yeah. and not labeling it right away as, you know, here's somebody black, Puerto Rican, somebody who's white, you know, lower class. Um, but these guys were like, you know, they turned off these payphones on us six weeks ago. I'm like, what? He's yeah, we built this encampment about 10 weeks ago. And six weeks ago, they turned these two phones off on us. We now have to go to such and such and such and such. So I drove to the location, sure enough, picked up the phones and they worked. So we had a dialogue. They're like, they're trying to cut off our communication with mm -hmm. people. And that's what happens in certain cities, unfortunately. Um, it's one way that cities think, oh, we can get them out of that area. And the strip mall was completely dead. There was nothing going on there. So why can't they be in that parking lot? Yeah. Yeah. This is, oh. they, cut, they cut off the communication so they can't yeah, talk to each other. That's tough. Um, yeah. It's pretty amazing, man. Like you've been able to like create this project, but it's much more powerful than just the photos. It's like something that's kind of helping like inform your community around you. Cause I'm sure like a lot of people like you and myself, I didn't realize that was like an issue. So it's like, it's very it's almost it's photojournalistic in a sense because there's much more to it than just like taking a pretty photo is that something you you, you feel like you try to do with your photography because i know you have a couple other projects with the fake news stuff you're kind of been documenting donald trump but is that like something you kind of look for when you're kind of working on a project not just so much making like a pretty picture but like what can i convey with this kind of yeah. And that's something, as you asked earlier, you know, what defines me or my projects, it's really about what's happening in my life. Um, my other project, which is private, go back, go back now, private. Yep. That was because of what happened in 2008 and how horrible New York state was to people. I'm not ashamed to tell I tell my students all the time. I went $343,000 in debt and I had to work oh, out of that shit. because of what happened. And New York did not make it any easier. New York hit me for about $60,000 of that. It was yep. absolutely ridiculous, the Labor Department. Um, and that's where that body of work came out of, you know, just my sick take on what it's like owning a business or just the economy of upstate New York and Western New York. Yeah. And for it was more personal. And this payphone project would have never started if I didn't move my studios. Yeah. Um, and it was just because how people were labeling the individuals. And I was kind of really, honestly, it was just pissing me off how many of the faculty and friends were labeling these people, I've gotten to know the families. My old place was broken into three times in nine months and they got about $85,000 of my Macs. They would throw the PCs on the floor, literally the monitors, and just steal the Macs, Ugh, smash and yeah. grabs. Yeah. Um, and that's where I was like, you do realize my old place is broken into, not going wood right now. This place is never 
I've had no issues. Yeah, it's like people, if you just took a little bit of effort and actually talked to people in your community instead of like jumping to conclusions, it's like, go walk around that neighborhood and see, like, like you said, like you're not having any issues and you sounds like you've met, made some like good friends within your new community where you're at now. It's just like talking to people is the main thing, I think, you know? Absolutely. And that's why, as you said, not just making pretty pictures for me, it's if I get somebody to stop and think for one second right now about before they make that label, because everybody has ADHD. All I can ask for is one second. Yeah. Um, but really that's where the pictures and that's why also it's just the pay phones. I don't want people being labeled that are in the, you know, the photographs. Um, but that's where I guess you could say a more of socioeconomic documentary type photographer, mm -hmm. which really looks at history and technology. Mm -hmm. And I never knew that's what I was. Yeah. Um, and that's where the Donald Trump, the fake news stuff. I never realized how much history and documentary comes into my work until I started that project. And then I realized when 9-11 hit, I was teaching at RIT and it was the second day of my photo one students. And the first student walked in and goes, I know you have a cell phone policy, but my aunt works in the South Tower. Can I leave it on? I'm like, dude, there are no rules today. Yeah. Just like we're not going to talk about F-stops and shutter speeds. We wound up collecting, we just talked about how photo and video would influence the history of that day. Mm -hmm. And then we wound up collecting newspapers from all around the world, from family and friends. We collect about 84 15 years later, I went back and resurveyed those students to say, what do you remember? Some remembered the smell of the classroom, could tell you everything. Others remembered nothing. And that's when I started realizing how we cope with different events. So when the election rolled around in 2016, we were trying to keep politics out of the household. My son was in first grade. He was, what, six years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't talk about it. And then he told me, oh, our school is going to run a mock election. Like, what? He's yeah, because nobody on the playground's playing anymore. All everybody's doing is debating about who's going to be president. And we're like, in first grade? You're in first grade. What are you what talking about? <laughs> and and we were, so we asked him, like, so who are you going to vote for? And he goes, Donald Trump. And we go, all right, why? He goes, well, because Hillary Clinton's going to make China great again. I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm like, I've heard that somewhere. And I go, where did you hear that? He goes, well, we are Philadelphia Eagles fans. We were watching one of the Eagles games and yeah. it came on as advertisement. And it wasn't until that Saturday that the same ad came on. And then I'm like, oh my God, that's where he picked it up. A commercial watching football. So then we realized we had to actually start talking about politics. Um, and my reaction was to start recording the news as things were happening. So on election, the day after election, I started recording all of CNN because that's what was being attacked. And then I didn't do anything because I figured things would change hopefully. Then the whole crowd size started for inauguration. So I started recording more. And at first it was just CNN because that's what was being attacked. And then I realized, you know what, to really record this for them, I was really thinking my kids at first, I needed to record CNN, ABC, Fox, New York Times, and Washington Post. And then it started to be every day. Then it grew to be multiple times every day for all those if I saw things changed. Um, and I had no idea what I was going to do with it. And then finally, it, the rhetoric, just as we all know, no matter what side you're on, we are not a, at a good place in this country. Oh, no. uh, we are so polarized. So I started looking at, okay, I need to do something with this. So I decided to turn it into to books. 
And so at first it was going to be three volumes. I thought red, white, and blue, um, you know, spread it out over the various years. And now since COVID hit, I've actually added a fourth volume, which is from March 2nd on, which is actually, it's just a solid black um, cover because I can't think of anything else to mark this time for what's going on. And now, you know, even with Black Lives Matter, um, it's just, that's the fourth volume. We'll just put it at that. And it's literally recording the news. So I'm, I'm very, I lean more towards the left, but I'm very much, I can go both ways depending on what's, what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but my in-laws are very, very far right. My, my brother-in-laws and father-in-law. So what they think about the project. <laughs> I made a huge, I thought I made a huge mistake, which was Christmas Eve this year. I left volume one and two out in, in my library at the house. Damn. And my father-in-law was out and he picked it up and I'm like, Oh my God, it's Christmas Eve. I'm going to get destroyed. And he looks at me and he goes, this is awesome. I'm like, wait a minute. What? He's like, this is really good. He goes, look, Fox news is right. I'm like, Oh, here we go. <laughs> but then he started saying, you know, look at the events. This, this is recording the events. I'm like, yeah, that's what it's all about. You stop looking at what's fake news and you look at the events. And he goes, you need to bring this tomorrow for Christmas. I'm like, oh, no, we don't talk politics in, in this household. <laughs> we don't do it. My brother-in-law lives in Skinny Atlas, New York. Um, so I, I'm like, all right, what the heck? Here, here goes a beta test. So I took volume one and two out. I'm like, here, everybody, after dinner, dropped them on the table, which is making loud thump. They are, um, these things are beasts. You can see the book oh, here. Damn. I'll, I'll oh, drop yeah. one in. That's, that's you, size. You, you've made two of those. Uh, well, I have volume one, two, and three okay, are done. Got it. And the goal is to get these into archives for, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. But so at Christmas, everybody's gathered around and I never realized my sister-in-laws were democratic. Okay. Cause also I'm like, yeah, look, cause my brother-in-law was like, look, Fox news, Fox news. And then my sister-in-law was like, look, they're wrong. I'm like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah. And cause we don't talk politics. And then after the 10 minutes of caddy, Oh, look who's right. They started talking about the events. I'm like, wait a minute, this actually does work. If it works with my family, it can work with anybody. And so that's where I wanted to have an event before COVID hit. It was going to be June 14th, which was Trump's birthday and flag day. Yeah. Um, where I wanted to get a national event where I'm going to, I just want to send the PDFs of the volumes to people and let them have events where people could just put up and curate what they feel is the most important. Um, I was lucky enough right before COVID to do it in Waco, Texas at a gallery called Cultivate 712. Yeah, I saw you like, uh, you guys printed out like a bunch of the like screenshots you took and it was almost just like, it was like playing cards almost and people could like pick them up. Yeah, at um, A. Smith Gallery in um, Johnson City, Texas. They're the ones, I was just doing the full pages. They went through and cut out the individual phones too. I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you're all dedicated even more than I am. <laughs> and we had a discussion. COVID was starting to happen. It was, I think, March 12th or March 10th, somewhere around there. And so they're like, I drove out. I was in Houston and I, I went from Houston to Waco to Houston to Johnson City, which was about a three-hour drive back that same night. But I went out. I just want to see what the community was going to do. And so I talked for about 30 minutes and there was just this dialogue that just kept going on for about 45 minutes. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. And we had Sharpies there, blue tape, push pins. And I got to stand back and just watch people talk. 
and the dialogue between individuals and talking about the different events and how it might have affected them was really, really powerful. And what I did, I have that time lapse, which is online. Yep. But I'm hoping to do that throughout the United States for October now, mm. October 14th. And even throughout the month, I just want communities to do something. Uh, Rhode Island Center for Photography has talked about doing something there possibly. Mm. Um, I, even though I collected these screenshots, I see it as an archive. It doesn't belong to me. I want it to be as accessible to anybody as possible. And that's why it has its own website, uh, www.fakenewsarchiveproject.com. You can go there and read every page if you want to, because it's not about buying the book. It's about having access to that information. So would you take like one screenshot per day or was there like a limit to it? And was there like, was there like certain, was there like a certain type of headline you were looking for? How did you approach like which ones you picked and that aspect of like putting it all together, I guess. So my routine was literally every day. So that way it never changed going CNN, ABC, Fox news, New York time, Washington post. You didn't want, and, you didn't want OAN? No, I didn't have that. <laughs> I've added Huffington Huff Post though. <laughs> um, so yeah, no, at first it was just going through the routine because I really only went for the ones that were being talked about all the time by our president. And those, if you think about it, who does he attack the most? Who does he praise the most? It's those five. Fake news and, media, baby. Fake news media, baby. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's why. And then it would just be just the headlines to avoid copyright infringement. I, all I want to do is, and I do have some of this very important stories recorded, but they're not in the books. Mm -hmm. And then it would be, I'd go back. Now it's almost hourly. I go back. And if I see something change, I will record it. And that's where after this next election, I think I need to go into rehab for two weeks with I no know, phone. It's a, it's a lot. Uh, is there anything you feel like you've learned from like, I mean, I, I read a lot of news, but uh, it, with a project like that, it's like, like you said, you got to have your eye on it because you want to stay on top of everything and document it. Is there anything from like really viewing all these different news sources, uh, like, like a lot, is there anything you feel like you learned through this process in terms of like, I don't know, politics, media, or anything in general you think? It really is. Um, you know, we always thought about the news as being, you know, the news growing up. Mm -hmm. We never had this notion of fake news, but now, you know, everything is controlled. When I was in college, my first year, I learned, you know, how a lot of the media companies, there's people that own the oil companies that are on the same boards for the media companies and the oil companies. You can see those ties. And that's something I knew going into it. But really, just the polarization of America right now, how there is no discussion, it really, since COVID hit, it really is demoralizing, is the only way I can put it. I am so done with this project. I don't care what happens with the next election. Yep. I don't know if I'll go up until inauguration but, or when I will finish it. Push through, man. We'll, push through. Push through. Oh. You're on the final. You can do it. No, not, no matter what, if, it's, if I go to the inauguration, I am done. You got it. Even if it. there's re-election um new president it doesn't matter i am done with this project yeah it's so bad you know on your iphone where you have like your family albums yeah um the viewers won't be able to see this but since we're on zoom i can actually show you, you look at who my number one person is donald trump <laughs> donald trump then there's my my wife my kids and then you go through it's nothing like but Ch politicians. Chuck Schumer. kim jong-un yeah, obama's yeah. there all of them yeah so I need to get my feed actually changed on my iPhone. And that's why I said, it's almost like I need to go away for two weeks and not record news. And then I know, okay, there's that gap. I, it's over.
Yeah, so. it's crazy, man. The news. I've talked about this a bunch on the podcast. Like, I have like a bunch of relatives, not even relatives, like tons of people. I feel like a big problem is like people get their news from like Facebook. Like you'll see these like charts and graphs, and I I'll see people post them, be like, so and so did this and this percentage of that. And then I'll always ask, like, what's the source? And then nine out of ten times we're like, Oh, I don't know. I just like saw it and then I just reposted. I'm like, what the fuck? I was like, it's not even news. Or they don't even go to verify it. Um exactly. one of my wife's family members puts on Facebook a few months ago, which was like somebody had altered the Bill Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation, the sign in front of the building to say, uh, for human uh reduction in population or whatever. Yeah. I'm like, come on. Yeah. Number one, a stone worker would never put the the line of a D down the middle of a crack on a brick wall or you know concrete wall. Yeah. Number two, go to Google Maps and here's what it really looks like. And exactly. I sent that to them and they still refused to take it down. I'm like, come on. Yeah, it's like yeah, that's that's a major, Facebook's no fucking joke, man. That thing's a fucking animal. Uh, and it's people crazy. don't care. Like you said, they will just keep things up. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Yeah. Even if you prove them, like this is not real. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. That's why it's important to read a lot of different sources. Because even like, I read a lot. I think I like the New York Times a lot. This because they seem like they they don't jump to headlines. They won't they won't print it until they have really verified their info. And with CNN, I've noticed they're very much like if they'll jump and put the headline out quicker than other people. It almost sometimes it comes across as like TMZ ish because it's like it'll be like giant bold blocks like da, 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 like you know what i mean it's uh so that's why i think it's important to read a lot of different stuff yeah and that's and that's the biggest thing that i've always believed and that's why i started capturing all the different ones is you really have to look at all the different sources that you can and even looking at fox news to see what are they reporting what is their angle oh yeah and tr- trying to get your base not that you're going to go and repost whatever they're doing um but even our, how many of them just believe on whatever trump tweets at this point yeah um i, I, I watch the fox news all those channels all the time because yeah it's really interesting to see their perspective and everything it's important to understand what they're saying uh another thing i was kind of interested in about being that you're like doing like gallery shows and stuff um like uh, artist statements like h- how do you approach that aspect of it because like i it's very interesting like it's a skill in itself being able to write about your work because i've definitely seen like exhibits where this artist statement the photos could be so good but the artist statement could just ruin the whole thing for me you know you know what i mean you mean the ones that are all heavy conceptual yeah it's just like man i get it it could be deep but like sometimes i'm just like who the f- oh, man you you really feeling yourself or something you know what i mean like, yeah sometimes those i feel like i'm not smart or something it's like i oh, really do and that's where if you read most of my artist statements, I truly believe, you know, it's more about what I'm doing with yeah. the project. Like I talk about, you know, the one for the payphone series. Mm-hmm. I literally just talk about the idea of what falsified calculus is, where I discovered it, you know, more of my process. I'm, I guess maybe my RIT background is why I'm so process oriented. I'm not sure. Yeah. But at the same time, I, when I read some of those artist statements, I'm just like, man, I'm lost. <laughs> And that's not the photographer and artist that I am. I re- I'm not putting down those people. Yeah. Um, but there's also the, the entirely heavily conceptual movement right now within galleries and museums. And again, we all have our niche. That's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Doesn't mean that I think poorly of it. Just sometimes 
I don't appreciate it as much as some others might. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where other people don't appreciate mine because mine is more of a socio-documentary style. And I get that. We're different people, just like a painter versus somebody that's working with charcoal. Mm-hmm. It's just another genre of photography at this time. Yeah, and no, I agree. I might, yeah, I might not like it, but yeah, you got to respect people's like artistic approach, I guess. And it's just like, yeah, but like you said, sometimes I just leave like, man, I'm dumb or something. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting. The, the first show my father ever went to in my work, which was the one actually that Mercer County Community College that Lou Draper wanted me to have. Yeah. Um, my, my parents came down to it. My parents never really understood what my, what photo school was. Um, like I said, blue collar, I come from a blue collar family. Yep. And so he's there and he's talking to one of the guys that I interned with at McGuire Air Force Base. They're all there too. And he goes, he's looking at my work. He goes, what's wrong with color? And the guy's <laughs> like, shh, 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 shh. don't say that. Don't say that. And he goes, why is it all black and white? <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, because like, what did your what, what did your like family think like when you were going to school for photography? Were like they supportive of it at all, or like did they think it was like a waste of time, or like what, what did they think of it? I I still don't even know what they ever thought of it, to be honest. <laughs> um, when I show them the work, I'd get maybe a second of time or so. Yeah. So no, they. I mean, they're starting to understand it more and more. Um, it helps that I can send them magazines that I'm in, like, oh, look at this, or you know, having that tangible thing like, oh, wait, you're in another book or so? I'm like, yeah. 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 How do you get in this? Well, everything that I'm doing when I'm traveling, these shows, these exhibitions, it all leads to this. Mm-hmm. Oh, so okay. they're starting to get it a little bit more. Um, it, but it, yeah, like you said, it's interesting. Yeah, no, everyone's family dynamic is different. Uh, speaking of black and white, because uh, looking at a lot of your work, it seems like you, you really enjoy the Hasselblad square format um have you always kind of is that been your kind of preferred format uh over the course of most of your career you think what do you what do you like about the black and white square i guess what's funny is at first um when i was first at rit uh i would actually i had a hasselblad and i took photographs with it i'm like i can't see square i took it on the southwest photo workshop i shot four by five i had a mamaya rz for six seven and the hassie yeah like I can't see square. I actually sold my, the Hassie at the time. And then when I was working on the penitentiary work, I started doing four by five and I realized I was going way too slow because all of it is really painted with light, 10, 15 minute long exposures. I was working with type 55 because I was running the photo program and working on my MFA. And it was the only thing I would develop. Yep. And then also in the last, cause working on it for three years of shooting and the last year I'm like, Oh man, I have to, move back to Rochester at the end of the summer. I better get going. And I switched over to the Hassie because we had them at Mercer. So I was able to just to borrow one. Yeah. And it just clicked. I, I just started seeing square. And from that point forward, it was really weird. It was an odd transition. So I still shoot four by five and five by seven, but my latest projects that I've been putting out have all been the square format. Mm. And I really don't know what, why, or where it happened but fundamentally i'm just seeing these compositions a lot better in square and that's why i also leave the frame on it for me just having that letting people know everything in the frame was there for a reason i go back to lou draper like i said Mm -hmm. he's in my head at times when i'm photographing um a few weeks ago with everything going on black lives matter i came across this shot and i swear i heard lou's voice i'm talking to me and it was just you know i saw this entire thing square format um maybe 
when I get 80 or become 80 or so, maybe then I'll show the four by five and five by seven work and be like, Oh, look, he was also doing this stuff. Yeah. Cause like, do you feel like once you start like creating this body of work and you're exhibiting it and people start to know your work more and more and more, do you feel like confined that you have to like stay within that style or that type of thing? Or how do you approach it? Cause like people start to view your work in a certain way, or do you not even worry about that? Like if you wanted to go shoot color, I don't know, whatever you can, you can do it if you want, I guess. I could do it if I wanted to shoot color, but for some reason it goes back to that. I really take it back to Lou, the idea of, you know, I could really control the viewer's eye mm -hmm. a lot more with the black and white frame. Um, going back to, you know, things like W. Gene Smith and the way he printed all these people, um, even Ansel Adams with, you know, Willie teaches his own system. But the idea with that is I really, again, I don't care what people are going to think about it. And also I think it's good if you change it up because why I don't want to be labeled as a square photographer. Yep. Just like I was meeting with um, somebody for a review the other day, a curator for a museum. She goes, Oh, you're the payphone photographer. I'm like, no, I'm not just a payphone photographer. The last couple of years I have been, but I do other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I do other stuff. I swear. <laughs> and that's why I also mark on my website that, you know, I have like four open projects right now. So people yeah. don't think, oh, I'm just doing the payphones. Just like I don't only do them in Rochester to make it look bad here. Yep. But here's a secret. All that now, because I know I can develop it faster, is all shot on C41. And then I'm converting it to black and white. Interesting. Because I'm not throwing different filters on the lens. And then in Photoshop, I can have the control to then just like we would, you know, black and white conversions. I can worry about my reds, my greens, and my yellows yeah. through that conversion process. And some of the photos are so much better in color, but I can't show both. And another reason for doing the, the payphone series in black and white is it really, when you see some of these scenes in color, you know, it's just dilapidated. Yep. And that's not what the work is about. It's about, you know, this is technology that people are still relying on. Um, and so that's where I, maybe in the future, people are like, oh, if in addition sells out, oh, by the way, I have this in color too. Yeah. Like, I highly doubt that will ever, ever happen. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and some of it's practicality. It takes me way too much time to develop the black and white film, even though I have Jobo processes in here. But during the school year, I have the RIT Photo Lab develop it for me. Yeah. I can't be teaching full-time, photographing, applying to these shows, and processing the film. Something has to give. And have two kids. <laughs> and Yeah, and then have two kids, be the Cub Scout leader, wrestling coach. You're a fucking animal, man. Uh, it's, but I, I figure I have my kids for 18 years. My son's turning 10 today, actually. Yeah. He's 10. So yeah. I got eight more years. You got him for life, man. <laughs> Don't forget. Well, uh, I can mold him in the house at least. For all right, all right. Yeah, films being, I, I, it seems like films kind of had a resurgence the last like few years. I see so much more people, you see it on Instagram more than ever, like film, there's a ton of YouTube film channels. Uh, like, have you noticed that at all? It seems like film kind of like in the last, I don't know, four or five years, it's really kind of almost like coming back in a sense a little bit. Yeah, we can thank the hipsters for that. Hey man, as long as they keep stop discontinuing films and stuff, let's go. <laughs> well, they're bringing films back, and that's where you see Kodak reintroducing, you know, slide films. Everybody's like, oh, maybe we'll bring Kodachrome back. It's like, no, that ain't gonna happen. But yeah. they're bringing back the films, and I, I never stopped shooting film. And the reason why I say this is, you, you know, we've talked about it a little bit. I keep going. I do a lot of different things. I need to be slowed down when I'm photographing, yep. and it's not just because it's film and I'm going to take less photos, but also for me, it does. I don't take 
I back up with digital just in case. Mm -hmm. And with film, I'll shoot one roll typically per payphone, 12 shots. Okay. But then I go and look at my digital later on. It's like, I took a hundred photos of this one payphone. Like, why am I not being selective? Yeah. But for me, it's about, I have that lag time before it's processed and I get it back mm -hmm. to think about what it was that I photographed and what I was trying to portray with that scene. Then I get back to filming and you're like, either you're like, oh man, I missed it. Or you're like, no, I got it. And sometimes I'm like, you know, no, I really need to go back and shoot at a different time of day. And I will do that. Mm. And I have some shots. We all have those shots. Even though I took 12 photographs, the lighting just wasn't right or something's wrong. Yeah, it can so. look good. It, like, that's the thing. Like, it can look amazing in person. And you shoot it on film or digital or whatever. It just sometimes the camera, it, it just doesn't translate. It just, and there's nothing you can do about it sometimes. That's just the nature of the art itself. We're forcing it. And then there's the other times, like the other day I was in a Letchworth State Park and I took a photo and I was so giddy about it. I couldn't even wait for the film to come back that I put it on Instagram. I threw up like a digital sketch of it, took yeah. it from like the Lumix, cropped it down and I made sure everybody knows this is just a digital sketch because the Hassie's going to look a little bit different. But like I said, every once in a while I get one of those shots where I'm like, I just want to get it out there. Cause I know I'm not going to process film for probably another two months. Damn. Plus, I have 60 roles to develop right now. That's a lot. Um, a couple so, more questions. I'll let you go. Uh, no problem. Yeah, because I was interested in talking to you, being that you, you, you taught like photography at a lot of different schools. You've been at RIT for a while now. Was, some, was, was teaching something, did, did you enjoy it from the get-go? Is it something that's kind of changed the, the longer you've done it? Like, what is it about teaching you enjoy, I guess? Um, for me, it's really about getting students to someplace that they want to be. My role at RIT is actually with the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually, I still teach for photo where I teach color management, the fine print workflow. Then I support all the um, NTID students that are in the photo department. So they might be deaf or hard of hearing. And sometimes they just need a little bit more support for certain classes like what you knew as materials and processes in photo, which is now photographic technology. Yep. So sometimes they just need a little bit more support. And that's one of my roles. And then I also teach for NTID. Oh, and so, a lot so of times- you, you know, So you're not assigned then? I'm, I'm always learning, but yeah, no, that's for, since 2012, I've learned to sign. Okay. I didn't have any sign when I first started. Um, Don Tower Dubois was in the job. And she goes, Eric, you should really apply for my job you're because I would always be assigned the NCID sections because she's like, you're one of the only people that has the patience. I'm like, what do you mean patience? She goes, you, you know, you, you expect a lot of your students, but at the same time, you will help them get to that point. You're not just going to dismiss them. I'm like, okay. I'm like, but I'll sign. She goes, you'll learn it. So I applied for the job and wound up getting it. And I love it. I didn't apply for any other full-time positions at RIT when I got back from Mercer because after being at the community college, it was really great helping to get students that wanted to get somewhere. Um, when I left, I had five students that all transferred to their number one schools. That was from SCAD, Parsons, SVA, you know, anywhere that they wanted to go, they got in their number one. And that felt so awesome. And just knowing, seeing the kids there with their work ethic, working all the time. Yeah. And as you know, at RIT, at most four-year schools, you're going to have the students that are working their tail off and you're going to have the ones that aren't. Yep. And I really gravitate if a student's struggling and, but they're working their tail off, I will give them all the time in the world. Yeah. If they're just not understanding it or just need a little bit more, but they're working hard. And that's what I really love about teaching. 
and that's something I learned by being at the community college. So I taught at RIT for two years before I did that. And it wasn't until I went to Mercer and I had a mentor at Mercer and they literally taught us to be teachers. And that's one thing that was really important to me. Um, it's a real that, skill. It's a real skill. Cause I always like, I struggled in school, like even at RIT, like certain, especially like the technical classes, like when, when it was like Photoshop, I'm not, not like some people can just like get it. But for me, like those Photoshop, like knowing how to put the layers in certain spots and like, it, it felt like a puzzle to me. And I think, I feel like you could tell like sometimes certain teachers, I think they thought like you didn't give a shit. And it's like, it's a real skill. Like, cause you're teaching a class of whatever it might be 10, 20 people and everyone, they learn so differently. It's like everyone, how they learn is this. Yeah. Like I said, it's so much different having that skill to be able to teach a, a lot of different people. One thing is like, it, not a lot of people can do it well, I think. Well, the one thing is a lot of times people to teach why, yep. why we're doing it too. Um, and that's, you know, we're not just pushing pixel pushers out of RIT. Hopefully there is a reason why, you know, for printing, why are we going to dodge and burn this way? What's the difference between doing it in Lightroom versus Photoshop? And here's five different ways. You pick what works for you mm -hmm. instead of my way is the only way, which is one thing that I've always really had an issue with. And you find that a lot, even online tutorials, like this is the only way it's like, no, show five different. Yeah. You know? And let the person figure out which way works for them because it just melds in their mind better. Mm -hmm. So no, yeah. I, I completely understand what you mean by that one. Yeah, no, but there's, I, I'm not just an RIT. I had so many amazing professors and a lot of the, some of the best professors they had were the adjunct guys. Like I remember I had Wayne Calabrese, <laughs> an incredible photographer. And he was such a good teacher because he like simplified it to like what he was doing. Like he would just show like the work that he was doing in his personal life instead of mm -hmm. like, I, I found like I related to that so well because you could tell he had a passion for it rather than this, like, obviously sure you want to learn the history of like Ansel Adams and all these legends, but like kind of hear his perspective on like literally the projects he was working on that week himself. Like I learned, I feel like I learned so much just from his perspective on what he was doing, you know? Yeah. And I think that's one thing that, cause when you were at RIT, I would say not, and we're not dissing RIT at all. Cause I mean, there was great faculty. Oh, I love it. Some of them didn't do his work outside anymore. Cause they were later on in their careers. Yeah. But now there's yeah. a lot of younger people. So they're actually doing, you know, like Clay Patrick McBride every weekend. He's going out and photographing. Oh, this is what I did this weekend. This is how I ran the lighting. Yep. He'll, he'll have a dialogue about it. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, this is what I'm doing. Yep. And I think that's one of the greatest things that you can also do. Like you said about Wayne Calabrese, um, there's Don Cochran, you know, they're out there doing it and then they're bringing it back to the classroom. Yep. And you have a lot of that also now with a lot of the full-time faculty too, mm -hmm. uh, which really does help. And they're showing their vulnerability. I mean, I think that's one of the best things you can do as a teacher is show all of your mistakes too. Yep. Not just talk about that. Um, I was on a Zoom call through the Halide Project in Philly the other day and the person talking, you know, was talking about just as many of the mistakes as the success. Yep. And that's where don't make my mistakes. So it's yeah, what I want to teach the kids. Yeah, man. It, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I, I loved RT. I, I miss it. Cause it's just such a, it's such an environment that I'm, I'm jealous of you and like Dan and like clay that you guys are still in it because there's no other place. Cause like the big reason I started this podcast was just because I want, I love this chopping it up with photographers and kind of hearing the struggles and everything and with RIT you guys have this amazing community where 
shit, the, the four years I was there, there's some badass photographers just within that four years that came out of like Pari Dukovic, who's like mm-hmm. killing the game right now in editorial, like yep. Chris Don Felber, uh, uh, a, a huge list of amazing photographers. So it must just be, it's almost kind of inspiring to see in some of these like photographers coming through and this even not even just the students, but just the faculty, like guys like Clay or Dan, who are like doing amazing stuff and kind of keep pushing and pushing. It's, it must be kind of a cool environment to always get to be around. It's really fun to watch what the students go out and do too. I think Steve Geralt was there when you were there also. Possibly. Yeah, I just interviewed him. That guy's a beast. He's doing all this stuff like ro- <laughs> robotics right now. That guy, that guy is a go-getter. So, and that's the thing. And you will note that if you think about all those people that had success or are having it now, yeah. if you look back at their RIT career and what they did when they were working, the one thing you'll find in common is those are the people that are either working at the cage or working all the time in after hours and constantly working. Yep. The work ethic is the number one thing that you see that comes out of that. Yep. And those are, and that's what, that's why I will gravitate to those people if they are struggling because in the end, help pushing them a little bit further. Cause if they have that work ethic, they're going to go far. Hell yeah. And this like Steve with his robots, we don't teach robots in you know, photo, but Dude, it's that thing's crazy. I was working with the one yesterday at Hasbro. They bought one. It's like a fucking quarter of a million dollars, these robots. There's only like a handful of them in the country. Steve's got, I went to a studio in New York. That dude has fucking three of them. And yep. he's doing all types of crazy shit. I'm like, man, I really got to step my game up for something. <laughs> yeah, that's where you almost need shirts like Johnny Five. So you're Johnny Five. <laughs> no, he does. He has names for them. <laughs> so I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I, yeah, that's the thing. I remember the thing I loved about RIT, like every week they had those like uh, speaker sessions. Like you, I had, they had, who they had there? They had Alex Webb, Dan Winters, Mary Ellen Mark came there. And I was just like tripping out. And it always drove me fucking nuts that like other kids, my students in, in my class, I'd be like, dude, Dan Winters coming here to speak. And like, sometimes the fucking auditorium would be like half empty. I'm like, bro, this dude is a fucking legend, man. <laughs> Yeah. And that's the thing. That's why they don't do as many because they just weren't getting the students show up. And it's just like, come on, these people are incredible. You know, we had Dwayne Michaels, you know, how many of these people, like I'd always buy a book afterwards soon, get it signed. I'm like, they're here. Why not? When I was a student. Yeah. I remember where- I went to one, they had Gina LaVey, amazing photographer from New York. She did this whole thing. Um, the whole series, I think it was called like, it's like the sand hogs, which was like in New York city when they're building like uh this underground, I don't know if it was like the subway or whatever. She came there and spoke and there was like nobody in it. They had people go, they gave them, they're like, if you can get five people to come back, we'll give you like a brick of film. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I ended up getting a bunch of film, but I was there anyways. Cause I, I love the, oh. the Charles Arnold lecture series. It was incredible. Absolutely. And that's where I'm hoping that that's one thing that maybe will change out of COVID now. Yep. is that because even many of the students are going online, signing up for different, you know, talks. Some of them are, not all of them again. But hopefully when they get back to RIT, they're going to realize what they missed about being on campus. And like those lectures, they'll be like, you know what, if they're providing this to us, maybe we should be there. Oh, yeah. um, I'm, I'm hoping that's one thing that will maybe change. I really do. Yep. Uh, because they do. They bring in these people that, I mean – some of the students have stuck after and gotten internships yeah, that yeah, next summer sure. with some I'm, people. Yeah, I met a couple of people like that. I was just like, this is fucking awesome. <laughs> it's like, where like, yeah. else are you going to every, every, every month or a couple of times a month? I remember one a memory I had at RIT. I was like leaving some class 
and I was walking by the, I think it's called the Web Auditorium, that big auditorium. And there was a sign that just said, Ralph Nader speaking. I was like, what? I, was just, <laughs> I walk in, it's just Ralph Nader that's giving a speech. I didn't know nothing that he was even going to be there. He was talking about like not having a credit card or some shit. And I was just like, what the fuck? And it's, it's, I, I miss it, man. It's, it's a great place. Yeah, you never know what's going to happen on that campus. No. Do they need to do something in the winter to keep you entertained. For sure. Do you feel like your approach to teaching has like changed from like when you started to now? Is it like something you're like constantly like evaluating and like, cause like I said, it's a really, it, it's a skill in itself being able to like communicate and like teach people a skill or show people stuff, I guess. It's something that I am currently working on, I would say, because the newer generation that grew up with the smartphone is what's now entering college. Yep. And they really do learn in a different manner. Um, they can do things sometimes that's like, it's like, wait a minute, I feel old now. It's like, wait, how, how did you do that on the phone? Or, you know, <laughs> wait, what did you do? And so, and that's one of the other best parts about teaching is you, you're constantly learning just as much from your students as you are. And you have to be vulnerable to want to learn from them also yeah. and adapt. Uh, that's one of the big pieces, but no, that's where, you know, teaching has definitely changed. I mean, I know when I was a student, I went in office hours. I'd go wait in front of the faculty member's office until they showed up. There was no email. Yeah, I'm that old. There was no email when I was in college. Yeah. It was just starting. There was this new email thing. Um, but with that, yeah, it's, it's definitely – but at the same time, sticking to my guns certain with certain students that, no, you need – if you don't get it and you put in the work – yeah, that's yeah. fine. I will help you. Yeah. But if you're not going to put in the work because you're like, Oh, well, I didn't understand the lecture. Yeah. Did you email me? Did you come see me? Yeah. If you didn't put in that little bit of extra effort, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be as flexible. And that's sometimes because people are too flexible with this younger generation. So it, it's a give and take just like anything else that I'm still trying to learn. Yeah. It's like if they're showing a genuine interest, you're, you're down to put in that extra work to help them out. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's smart, man. Um, but I guess like what's next for you, man? Like, I know you always got like so many baskets going, you got your hands in a lot of different stuff, but like, I know COVID everything's going on right now, but like, what's next for you? Any kind of goals moving forward, I guess? Honestly, for me, it's, uh, about, I've been trying to apply for different grants, which all I've been doing is getting rejected from. So that, that's another little hurt, but really about finishing this payphone series. I have only about 938 of the 1,455 payphones photographed. Okay. And I'm finding more that aren't even on Frontier's list. So it's basically about trying to drive down every city street at this point. Um, But really the fake news. Um, If anybody's interested that's listening to the podcast and wants to try to get it into their community, um, if they visit fakenewsarchiveproject.com, I'm just looking for people to collaborate with this. If they have any idea on how to, what to do with this information and get it out in October before the election. Yep. I don't care if you're right or left or in the middle, like I am just, if you want to get this information out. So I'd really say my big thing right now is the fake news archive project. And I do have a deadline. Uh, the pay phones are going to be shown in Chicago, but I still have, I think four solo shows coming up in 2020. Damn. Just hoping they're not canceled. But just keep on going and also keeping a roof over the studio. Yeah. Um, as you know, just like most people with COVID, most of my clients are showing in galleries and museums, my printing or even the books. We were supposed to have a residency this summer that we had to cancel with a faculty member and a college graduate. Oh, so they're uh, going to so, 
come and work at the studio and you kind of like teach them kind of? Yeah. And then they produce their books. Um, Our last resident, uh, Marshall Shuttle, well, he was two years ago, is actually about to have his book published with Chris Graves that he had worked on here. They're editing it. They're changing it a little bit, but that was his starting point for it. And he made a, you know, limited edition of five copies. Yeah. Um, these others were going to make, I think, limited editions about 20, 25 copies to sell with their exhibitions. But yeah, no, trying to keep the studio going is one thing with uh, very little income coming in. Yeah. What's like, I guess we didn't really get into that that much. Like with Booksmart, like what do you, what's your kind of goals with it now? Cause I know before you had that whole like printing aspect, you had the gallery, but now it's a little more like sized down. Like what kind of projects are you, I know you'll, I know you made a bunch of cool portfolios for clay. You've done it for a ton of artists. You'll make books. Uh, what kind of stuff are you working on over there now, I guess? Really? And that's one best part. Um, 2012 is when I stopped having employees mm-hmm. and it's, it's the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, I don't worry about New York state, but also I get to pick and choose. Book with. Um, so really the clients that I do have are ones that understand there's a relationship. Um, they also understand what it is that I do. Or a lot of them will just give me files and say, you know what, do your thing on it. Do your Kunzman magic, as someone would call it. And just get it, whether it's color or black and white, get to that point. And most of our clients, you know, they're doing dish and work. I don't work with the local community in Rochester very much because they want one-offs. Yep. Where, you know, Greg Davis, who's in Austin, Texas, Kathleen Tunnel Handel, who is in New York City, you know, what they're doing is they're exhibiting. So I have all their, you know, files on my server. And whenever they need something, I'll just print it up, ship it off to their framers and move from there. Those are the people that I want to work with. And also that want to build their work further. The books, again, we do very little locally, but I'd rather invite somebody in like an atelier, um, or even RIT faculty, uh, Meredith Davenport's downstairs working. We have a dark room in the facility for non-silver. Oh, wow. So the idea is get more of the brain down in my studio. Again, that dialogue that we can have amongst each other. Um, even inviting people in, uh, artist RJ Kern out of Minneapolis, just collaborate with him on his, um, his artist book project. But he stayed at my house when he went to take class with Nick Brandeth at the Eastman Museum. Wow. On That's Salt cool. You kind of, you kind of like created this whole little community. Like that was, I mean, it must've been obviously cool. Like you obviously a lot of stress with your old space, with the, the amount of overhead and like the gallery, but uh, was that kind of like this kind of building that community? Cause like, I think Rochester, when I look at it, like, I think it's always funny when I talk to my friends that are like born, born and raised there, live there their whole lives. They, they, sometimes they kind of, they kind of shit on it. But for me, Rochester has so much flavor so much like the art scene is like such an amazing place. Like it must be kind of cool just having that gallery space and kind of creating the community, I guess. Actually back then we stopped it because I would actually have to agree with your friends that grew up in uh, Rochester and nah, it's not here. Um, everybody has their own flag. They're staking the ground. Like, this is my space. We can't work together. Oh, really? When I was in Philly, everybody worked together. We all thought, you know, if this exhibition is not right for me, Eric, you need to apply for it and so on. Damn. And if we grow as community, that doesn't happen here in Rochester. I have friends, you know, Nick Brandeth. I mean, those people that I knew from RIT, not even Rochester. Yep. Um, and that's where the last show we actually had in the gallery. I'll tell you one funny story was, I figure, okay, we were thinking about closing it. So I put up my penitentiary work and one person walks in like, Oh, so where'd you get your printing done? I'm like, ha ha, you're funny. You know where. And the next person comes in and it's like looking at one of the prints goes, I recognize that photo. I'm like, yeah, you're a photographer. I know who she was. And 
goes, yeah, I'm like, you get photo magazines, right? She goes, yeah. And Infinity has an ad and they're using that, you know, these two images in the ad. Yeah. They look, I mean, they go, why would they use your images? And I'm just like, all right, that's it. I'm done with the galleries. And what I literally went around saying, this is our last show. That's so fucked Because up. that was the attitude we had Ugh. all the time. And we would face students. We would show glass, ceramics, metal. So yeah. we want to expose Rochester to different things. Yeah. And so that's why I stopped it. I invited, there was a letterpress studio on the fourth floor to move down and occupy the space. I'm like, I'm done. Yeah. And I'm like, if you want to set up a retail yeah. shop too, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so no, I actually agree with your friend for that, but the community that I have built really started when I moved here because my mortgage is 25% of what my rent was in the old space. Yeah. And it's allowed me not to be stressed and to start talking with people and build that community. I didn't do a good job at all in the old space of that. Really? Um, cause it was always about the overhead. It was about, I, I need to pay my bills. Yeah, I guess I didn't. Yeah, because like for me, I don't. I didn't really see that side of it. I just remember going to some of those shows, and I just remember it was like such an amazing. The gallery itself was, it was a great space, uh, but yeah, it's a lot of stress. It's the amount of overhead and everything. Uh, that's one thing I've always been jealous of, like musicians, because if you look at musicians, they welcome collaboration. They're like, "Oh, let's jam, let's work on a song, let's do this." But with, I guess with visual arts, it's a it's a unique thing. It's basically like a solo voice, pretty much. But I don't know. You're starting to see more collaboration, though, I think, going on amongst people and even just more dialogue. Yeah. Uh, showing work back and forth. People are really kind of getting back to that idea of like critiques in schools. Yep. You know, how do we have the Griffin Museum right now is doing something that they call their photo chat chat. So oh, once yeah. a month, four photographers, you get what, 10 minutes yep. to talk yep. about whatever work, you know, they ask you to. Yep. And at yep. the end, there's Q&A, but it's just like, let's just get your, you know, a dialogue going on between people. Yeah. For sure, man. It's cool. Like, like, like this, man. I was excited to talk to you because, like, I never had any class with you at RIT, but like, I always like, like I said, I went to your your old shop, and I was just like, was, I always had respect because I could tell, like, you knew what the fuck you were doing. Like, you really had a passion, and like anybody who has that same passion, I just want to fucking chop it up with them, you know? Yeah, Hughes told me you were scared to take my class. That's not true. Why did he say that? <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> I just did it. No, know. I was like, oh, if I'm going on uh, on this podcast, I think I finally made it in my career. No way, dude. What do you ask? <laughs> I was listening to Clay Patrick McBride. What's funny is I actually listen to your podcast as I'm driving work to different galleries. Yeah. I go between you and the real photo show with Michael Siobhan Dalton. Yep. So I, I changed it up between the two of you. So all that right, way, all you right. know. I try to mix it up. I get like, you know, I get ad guys, you get some fine art guys, food photographers. I try to just have a mix of like all different types of people. So. It's all good. You're uh, what I listen to when I uh, drive my work to different places. So. Thanks, man. Well, Eric, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And for anybody listening that wants to check out more of your work, where's the best place for them to go? You can go to my website. It's just erickunzman.com. It's spelled K-U-N-S-M-A-N. And also from there, there's links to other websites like the fake news archive project.com. And if you want to learn about more about the studio, it's simply just booksmartstudio.com. Yep. And then Instagram, same thing as Eric Kunzman, right? Eric underscore Kunzman. Perfect. I'll link it and people go check it out. And thanks so much, man. All right. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. That was the Eric Kunzman interview. I just want to thank Eric so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Uh, like I said, I've been a big fan of Eric's work and Everything he's done with uh, Booksmart Studio, with his printing and bookmaking. Uh, just a really talented guy. Uh, so can't thank him enough. Uh, definitely go check out Eric's website at erickunzman.com as well as 
at his Instagram, at Eric underscore Kunzman. Uh, lots of really cool projects up there, and he's always updating it with new work and whatever he's kind of working on. Um, so definitely go give him a follow. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts uh, every Monday usually. I was a little late this week, but every week on iTunes, Spotify, as well as check out our new YouTube page at The Photo Banter, um, different videos and whatnot up there. So definitely go check that out. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Take care.